Psalms. We're in uh, Psalm 63 in our study. So we'll start with our um, summary statement for Psalm 63. Psalm 63 thirsts for God while hoping in God's King. for satisfaction and joy. I'll go over that one more time. Psalm 63, thirsts for God while hoping in God's King for satisfaction and joy. Our basic outline will be in two parts for this psalm, verses 1 to 8, confidence in God, verses 9 to 11, judgment on enemies. So I'll go over that one more time. Verses 1 to 8, confidence in God. Verses 9 to 11, judgment on enemies. Okay, so we'll go to our observations of Psalm 63. Uh, The psalm was written by David, as we see in the superscription, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So the superscription ascribes this psalm to David. There's no musical direction that is given there, no musical direction in the text of the psalm. There, there is an occasion mentioned, which is when David was in the wilderness of Judah. Um, that is a little bit general, um, as there were some different times in his life when he was there. So um, could be uh, speaking about the wilderness of Ziph, and this would have been when he was fleeing from Saul. Um, so 1 Samuel chapters 22 to 26 um, in this time when he's fleeing from Saul and he comes into the into the wilderness, it could also be um, when he fled Jerusalem from Absalom during Absalom's rebellion in Second Samuel chapter fifteen. Um, and it seems that it, that is quite possible. There's a number of expressions here um, that can be uh, related to what was said about David during the time that he was fleeing from Absalom. Um, but it's not entirely for certain. It's just it's just sort of general. But uh, at least we know that he was in he was in the wilderness. He's under distress, um, a crisis, having enemies opposing him, and obviously uttering um, false witness against him. So Psalm sixty three is a kingly or a royal psalm, and we have the mention of the king, um, God's Malak in. Verse number 11, it also has thanksgiving and praise elements, um, has some wisdom elements in it, Uh, the mention of remembering and meditating in verse 6. We have contrast in the outcomes for the faithful as opposed to the liars who are seeking to destroy in verse um, 9 through 11. 
Uh, we also have a contrast set up in the mouth of praise from verse 5 and the mouth of lies in verse number 11. So some wisdom elements also contain some prophetic predictive judgment elements, so uh, particularly in verses 9 to 11. So it's not an imprecatory psalm. He's not praying for um, these judgments, but he speaks of the judgment of condemnation coming upon um, all liars when their mouths will be stopped. So Psalm 63 connects to the preceding David psalm group, um, psalm beginning there, especially Psalm 52 um, through 62. Uh, It has some special connections with Psalm 61 and 62 before it. So in sort of in the connections with the general group, we have this exile and refuge theme. Um, We have the mention of false witness, uh, the enemy adversary and judgment upon the enemies and ultimate vindication of the righteous sufferer. In Psalm 61, we have a mention of God's wings, uh, the shadow of God's wings in verse 4 of Psalm 61. uh, That is here in verse 7. Uh, We have mention of the sanctuary in verse 4 of Psalm 61 and here in verse number 2. We also have the mention of the king specifically um, here in verse 11 and in Psalm 61, verses 6 and 7. In Psalm 62, we have the mention of God's power and his hesed, his Um, Loving kindness, his steadfast love, uh, that's in verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 62. And in um, verse uh, 2 and in verse, let's see, in verse verse 2, especially in this this psalm, uh, we also have the theme of justice and the the judgment of the wicked ultimately getting their due uh, in verse 12 of Psalm 62, as well as in verses 9 to 10 here in Psalm 63. Uh, I would also note a few connections with Psalm 42, which is one of the Psalms in that Korahite group that starts um, this book, this collection of the Psalms. So you have the mention of soul thirst here in verse number one and Psalm 42 verses one and two. Uh, we have that same that same soul thirsting. Uh, that's where we have the comparison as the deer pants um, for the water and, and so on. Um, we also have the reference to meditating uh, here in verse 6 and in Psalm 42 in verse number 8. Uh, the poetic features of this psalm uh, primarily would be the imagery um, that is used in this psalm. So we have um, a man being parched in the desert. Uh, that's what opens the psalm in verse number 1. We have imagery of a rich feast in verse number 5. We have the shadow of God's wings, the imagery of that mother bird that is um, sheltering and protecting um, the little little birds in verse 7. We have the mention of the foxes or jackals uh, as scavengers in verse 10, of uh, the sword as a, an image of military battle and, and conquest. And then throughout the psalm, in Psalm 63, we have various references to parts of a person, uh, mouth and lips and um, then we also have references to soul uh, or breath. And, and um, so these references are a, a way of expressing the whole person, the whole being, um, both within and without the material and the immaterial. Um, we also, poetically, we have a number of contrasts that are set up in this psalm. So you have the opening of the psalm 
you have a mouth that's dry and thirsty, um, but that mouth that's dry and thirsty will praise God by verse three and will be filled by verse five, but the mouth of lies will be stopped there in verse number 11. Uh, of course, that uh, imagery of the, the dry and thirsty mouth in verse one also um, gives us a, a um, thematic movement from empty to fullness um, by the end of the psalm. We have the contrast, we have joy in desert exile. So in verse number five, being in the dry and thirsty land, but yet rejoicing in God. And then we have the contrast with joy with the king in verse number 11. So that's that's now out of the exile, out of the wilderness, out of the desert and rejoicing with the king. Um, we also have something of a, of a contrast or a, or a poetic reversal where those who were seeking to destroy David's life um, are themselves to be destroyed. That's in verses 9 to 11. All right, so let's work our way through this Psalm 11 verses. O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and a thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus I will bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me, but those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword, they shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Every one that sweareth by him shall glory, but the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. So in verses one and two, as the psalm opens, we have direct address um, to God. Um, the first line, O God, thou art my God. Um, as I understand it, the Hebrew literally would read something like, my God, thou art, uh, or mighty God, something like that, thou art. So the, the first line is a very personal expression. It's a very intimate um, expression of God as his God. In other words, it is reflective of the covenant relationship um, that he has by trusting in God, that this um, God of the universe and this great God uh, and all of these things, the one that will overcome the enemies and all of that is yet very close to him. So obviously we, we open in this dry um, desert, this dry wilderness, dry, barren, arid land, but yet he, he begins, though it is an exile theme, he is expressing a closeness to God. So he's seeking him early, and early um, has the sense of diligent. It's, it's not necessarily a time reference. Um, in other words, in the way that it's used, he refers to soul thirst, um, a dry and thirsty land, obviously, that is describing desert conditions. And this soul thirst, um, this uh, longing of flesh, thirsting of soul, 
Um, these are put for uh, for great longing. And in other words, it's a um, it's a, an extreme or or sort of a maximum expression. And, and again, in Psalm 42, verses one and two, talking about the deer that's panting um, for the water. So the word for longing that is used here, uh, longeth, it, it's, it actually has the idea of, of fainting and weariness. And so we get sort of a, a nearing death image um, from this expression. So he's in, a, he's in a dry and thirsty land. There is no water. His soul is thirsting, and, and um, by soul, I don't think that immediately means um, a spiritual reference. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a physical description, but the physical description is, is multi-layered. So in other words, the physical description is actually also being applied to sort of a spiritual experience that is going on, what you might say, underneath. So he's thirsty. He's in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water and he is his flesh his 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 body is fainting with weariness and so it is a it is a nearing death image uh, one that obviously if he doesn't find food and and water and and shelter um obviously then he is going to come to death in in the second verse he refers to the power and the glory of god uh the word for glory here is the hebrew term kavod uh, we've talked about that a number of times when it has appeared. Uh, it's oftentimes associated with that kingly rule. We've seen that in a number of Psalms, uh, Psalm 3 and verse 3, Psalm 4 and verse 2, Psalm 8 and verse 5, Psalm 16 and verse 9, Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. All these are messianic Psalms, uh, royal Psalms. Uh, and then more recently, Psalm 57, verses 5, 8, and 11, and the previous Psalm, Psalm 62 and verse number 7. Now, the word for sanctuary that appears there means holiness, and it can describe uh, a holy space, a holy place, a, uh, a consecrated place. Uh, it describes God's holy hill in Psalms like Psalm 2 and verse 6, Psalm 3 and verse 4, and Psalm 43 and verse 3. It describes God's throne in Psalm 47, 8. It describes his mountain in Psalm 48, 1, and it describes his spirit in Psalm 51, 11. And again, um, when we look at these instances where this is used uh, and, and appearing in a royal psalm or a kingly psalm like it has, we know we, that's something that we would come to expect to see. It is oftentimes associated with that. Um, verses 3 to 4 continue then, and essentially from this dry and arid place, David is giving forth reasons to praise God. So he begins with this statement that God's loving kindness, and that is the Hebrew term hesed, um, and his hesed is better than life. That refers to uh, loyal love. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a love that is um, had or, or displayed within relationship. It's, it's oftentimes associated um, with God's covenantal faithfulness. Um, and life here is better than life. Life refers to the mortal life and to the necessities of life. And so, in, in essence, he's saying that God's covenant faithfulness, covenant mercy, covenant love, um, and, I, and I think the New Testament equivalent um, to the Old Testament, Chesed, would be um, the charis in the Greek, which would be grace. Um, but God's um, covenant faithfulness, his covenant love, his covenant mercy 
are better than the necessities of life. Um, so the, the lips that are dry from thirst are lips also that will praise God because of his hesed. Um, then we get to verse 4, and we have here a continual uh, or a vow to continually praise God. Um, the lifting up of hands is an expressive posture. Um, it can express dependence on God, as in, um, as in the need for help or the need for provision. Um, it can express prayer to God that can be uh, a, a pouring out of one's soul to God. And it can also express praise to God. Uh, and we've seen it used in Psalm 28, verse 2, and Psalm 44, and verse number 20. Verses 5 to 6, we have David speaking of satisfaction and joy. And so being in a dry and thirsty land with no water and having a fainting, fainting flesh and um, thirsty soul doesn't sound like a recipe for satisfaction or joy. Um, but David speaks to both of those in these verses. So being satisfied, the word that's used there means means to be filled. It means to be full, to be filled, to have enough, to be fully satisfied. And this is the promise to those who trust in God, that they will be satisfied. So we have references like Psalm 17, verse number 15, Psalm 22, verse number 26, and Psalm 37, and verse number 19. And this is also the satisfaction that is noted as being denied to the wicked. And that is in Psalm 59 and verse number 15. So the satisfaction of the soul, um, there's a comparison here. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. In other words, he's speaking to the satisfaction as the body would enjoy satisfaction with a rich feast. Um, the fatness and, and the marrow, which describes a rich feast. This is actually a future promise uh, in Psalm 36 and verse number eight, being full, um, being made full with this rich feast, this messianic feast. Uh, mouth and lips are made joyful and issue forth praise. Then we get to verse number six, where he calls to mind and he meditates on God using that word uh, remember and meditate there in verse number six. Meditate uh, most likely means quietly reciting God's law. It is the word we saw in Psalm 1 and verse number 2, that uh, that blessed man that meditates on, on God's law day and night. Um, we've seen it used some other times, that, and it can refer to speaking out loud, but, uh, but it does refer to, to, to uttering sound, to uh, making some sort of mutterance. So when he's talking about meditating on his bed, the, the image that we get is at night um, or... or um, He's remembering on his bed in the night watches. He is meditating, or we could we could think of him as reciting God's law. He's he's speaking God's words, probably uh, very lowly and very quietly, but yet he is speaking forth. And in that way, he is is putting um, God's words through his through his mind over and over and, and over again. Um, the bed and the night watches are a complement to the way we started the psalm early. Uh, we talked about the word early, and it really it does literally refer to the dawning, um, but it's not necessarily used again as a uh, as a distinct um, chronological time marker. 
but it is complemented here with the night watch and the bed and the early. So in other words, it covers all times. It, it covers all times, day and night. Verses 7 to 8, where David speak of refuge. Um, help is one who gives assistance, and we're uh, obviously told that God is the only help for those who trust in Him. Uh, we've seen that uh, used that way, Psalm 22, verse number 19, Psalm 27, verse 9, Psalm 35, verse 2, um, more recently, Psalm 60 and verse number 11. Um, the shadow of his wings, and that's the imagery of shelter and protection that we've encountered a number of times, like in Psalm 17, 8, Psalm 36, 7, as well as in Psalm 61, 4. It is a covenantal reference. It is a covenantal image um, that was introduced in the book of Deuteronomy to describe um, the protection that those who trust in God would come under. They would come under the shelter or the shadow of his wings. Uh, in verse 8, he speaks of following hard after God. Now, the word here is actually the word for cling or for cleave. And it's, it's translated that way in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 24, where it talks about a husband leaving father and mother and cleaving um, to his wife. So he's cleaving to his wife in a covenant relationship that's being described there. This is the same word that is later used to describe Israel's expected response to God through his covenant with him. They are to cling to him. So that appears a number of times in Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, chapter 11, verse 22, chapter 13, verse 4, and chapter 30, verse 20. He mentions God's right hand, uh, which is a reference to God's strength or power, and it speaks of his power to protect and also to provide. Um, and we see it used in various ways, Psalm 16, um, verse 8 and verse 11, Psalm 17 and verse 7, Psalm 18 and verse 35, more recently, Psalm 48, verse 10, and Psalm 60, verse number 5. Now, the right hand also speaks of God's invincibility. In other words, it's, it's his strength, it's his power, and, and he cannot be overcome. He can't be successfully opposed. Um, he is preserving uh, this word for upholding. He is preserving the faithful. This word is used this way, uh, Psalm 16 and verse 5, Psalm 17 and verse 5, Psalm 41 and verse 12 as well. Verses 9 to 10 now do mark a little bit of a change because here's where we get the crisis of enemies. and These, these, these enemies haven't been um, apparent in the psalm to this point. In fact, it almost seems like an environmental psalm. Um, it's, it's, he's against the elements in a dry and, and thirsty land. But now really we see that he, he is in that condition because of the enemies and their opposition to him. So uh, verse 9 makes it clear they're seeking David's soul to destroy it. They are opposing David. They're seeking David's destruction as the king. And the depths of the earth uh, is a reference to Sheol. It's not the word Sheol that is used, sometimes rendered grave, sometimes rendered hell. Um, but it is a reference to, um, to that. And it, in other words, it, it refers to death. But it's not just death in the sense of the ending of a physical life, but it's death in the sense of judgment. It's death in the sense of condemnation, um, being, being consigned to the lower parts or to the depths of the earth. Um, 
And in verse 10, it says, they shall fall by the sword. And the word for fall means to pour out or to run down. The sword is obviously a figure of military battle. The reference to foxes, the word itself refers to a burrower. Um, so it can mean a fox like we think of in terms of a fox. It could also refer to more of a desert jackal. Um, either way, it refers to scavenging animals. And so this picture here would be um, like that of a battlefield where um, some have, have been slain and so they have fallen. Um, they're, they're left on the battlefield. They're not um, buried. They're not given any distinction or honor. And so the scavengers are feeding on them. And these uh, foxes, the same term is used, associated with desolate places, places where foxes tread uh, are, are places, generally speaking, that are wild and inhospitable um, to human life. So Lamentations chapter 5, verse 18 being an example of that. And obviously the imagery, though not just foxes, sometimes it could be dogs, but the, the, the imagery of someone being slain and fallen and left and being fed on by scavenging animals is, is one that depicts a dishonorable death. And so that appears a number of times. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 14 and verse 11, uh, 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 4, 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 23 to 24. And then we end with verse 11 and we have this reference to the king. And we've seen uh, the king referenced as early as Psalm 2 and verse number 6 and as recently as Psalm 61 and verse number 6 and several times in between those. So the king that we are shown in this verse is obviously the, the king who will triumph over his enemies, just like Psalm 2, verses 8 to 9 um, describe. So everyone committed to the king, everyone that sweareth by him or, or taketh an oath. In other words, it's, it's another way of describing a covenantal relationship, one who has put their trust in him. So everyone who has committed or covenanted to the Lord will rejoice and will praise in the king. And he's talking about uh, because of the, the deliverance and the, the downfall of the enemies. Uh, he's, he ends this psalm by speaking of how that the, the liars' mouths will be stopped. Um, liars, they, speaking lies means that they are opposing, they are contradicting God's word, uh, particularly, for instance, um, his word about bringing his king to his holy hill in Psalm 2. And they are brought to judgment with no excuse. And that's what the stopping of mouths, and as that appears in a few different places in Scripture, uh, Paul refers to this verse actually in, in Romans chapter 3 and verse number 19 when he's talking about how all, uh, all of man, whether um, Jews or, or Gentiles, are naturally sinners and they are before God without excuse. And so our mouths are stopped. In other words, if, if we stand before God and our righteousness and unrighteousness is exposed, our mouths are stopped. We have no defense. We have no explanation. We have no clarification. In other words, there's nothing but a surety of judgment against us. And so that's what he says um, here about all of those that speak lies. In other words, those that oppose God and oppose his king, oppose his anointed, they will be stopped. They will be brought to judgment without any remedy. All right, so let's go to interpretation. Um, Psalm 63 speaks of the necessities of life. So as we 
kind of look at the material that is being worked with in Psalm 63. We have the necessities of life, and these necessities of life are also teaching and saying something about the necessities of spiritual life. So the basic needs are in this psalm, food, water, and shelter. We have those things are all mentioned in this psalm, um, being in a dry desert. So a man that's in a dry desert, it's a place with no water. He's thirsty and fainting. He does not need to be reminded that he needs food, water, and shelter. In other words, his environment and his circumstances are continually reminding him of his needs of the basic necessities of life. Well, he goes on to say then in verse 3 that God's covenant love, his hesed, is better than the necessities of this life, food and water and shelter. And so ultimately, the necessities of spiritual life are fulfilled in him. In other words, without the necessities of physical life, um, we die. David is, is, sort of, is sort of giving us a near-death image in this psalm. So without those food, water, and shelter, we die. Um, but spiritually, inside or within the covenant of God, placing our trust in Him, taking Him as our refuge, being under the shadow of His wings means that we have what is better than the necessities of life and ultimately leads to life that will never end, life in fullness and life in joy. Psalm 63 teaches the two ways of life and death. And ultimately, as the psalm comes toward the end, we see that either God will prevail or those who oppose him will prevail. So when David speaks about his enemies and they're trying to destroy his life, but then he starts to speak about the king by verse number 11, he lets us know that this is, this is larger than just some personal grievance that they have with David. This is larger than just someone that is sort of um, pestering David or, or becoming a problem. Th these enemies are opposing David because he is God's anointed. And ultimately... That is where, that's where the real battle is. That's who they are opposing. They are opposing God. They are opposing God's word. They're opposing God's king. Um, and so either God will prevail or those who oppose him will prevail. Well, in verse 11, we see the king, we see the king's people, and we see the king's enemies. The king himself is victorious. And he prevails over all his enemies. And his people then rejoice in him. In other words, his victory is the victory of his people. The king's enemies, they're, they're, therefore, are put to full justice with their mouths stopped. So all of their opposition, all their rebellion, all of the, um, the, the uh, chaos and, and fuming and raging that we see like in Psalm number 2, all of that will amount to nothing, and ultimately they will be put to shame. 
So the Messianic hope in this psalm is seen through the anointed king's desert exile of this life being brought to fullness and joy in the coming king. All right, so David prefigures his son, the the greater David, the one who is to come. He was in the wilderness of this human life. So when we think about Christ coming to this earth in human flesh, his whole experience on this earth is a wilderness exile. He was literally in the wilderness um, during the temptation, but that is not the only time that he's in this wilderness exile. So think about like what Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And even though it is somewhat difficult for us, and I might say just ultimately incomprehensible, in some ways, Jesus took on the form of flesh, took on the human flesh, and lived on this earth, and in some ways was separated from the glory of God. Um, So like in John 17, when he's praying about that glory being restored, the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. In some way, he is that's laid aside. In some way, he's separated from that. He is in a wilderness exile. He is surrounded um, by uh, wild beasts. He's surrounded by hostile enemies that are opposing and raging against him. So David foresees... From his desert exile, David foresees glory and he foresees feasting with the king, particularly verses 2, 5, and 11. And so we have an allusion here to this messianic feast at his coming and his kingdom, which we have seen um, referenced before. Messianic Psalms like Psalm 22, verses 22 to 31. Psalm 23, verses 5 and 6. Psalm 27, 6. And also Psalm 36, verses 7 and 8, where this feast is also associated with being under the shelter, under the shadow of God's wings. So Jesus Christ is the king promised to come from Judah. David is in exile in the wilderness of Judah. And he will lead David. This king, this coming one, will lead David out of the wilderness to his holy place, like a shepherd in Psalm 23. So Jesus has fulfilled this prefiguring in his own life of suffering. David, in verses 9 to 11, sees his vindication because of God's covenant. And that's a, that's a common theme in these Psalms, and particularly when he's the righteous sufferer, which he is here in this Psalm as well. So he's in a desert exile. He's a righteous sufferer. He has these enemies that are opposing him, speaking lies, trying to take his life. But ultimately, he's going to be made to rejoice in the king who comes, who gains victory. So David will ultimately be vindicated. In other words, he's experiencing a physical and a temporal trial, but will ultimately come to fullness because of the king and because of God's covenant. So we see that in verses 9 to 11. Well, Jesus also looked forward from his desert exile and spoke of his vindication um, to the high priest. So like in Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 64, it says, Jesus saith unto him, 
thou hast said, they were asking him, are you, uh, verse 20, let's read verse 63. But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, thou hast said. Notice this though, nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He's referring obviously to his vindication, his future um, vindication and, and, his, and his return to this earth. And so David foresees from his wilderness exile, he foresees this vindication that is coming. Jesus again fulfills this um, in his in his exile and sees this vindication coming. So Jesus then is the shepherd. He is the shepherd that is leading us, all of those who trust in him in the wilderness. He's leading us to food, water, and shelter. All right, applications for this psalm. I have two of these. Ways that this psalm speaks to us today. Number one, understanding Psalm 63 helps us understand that trials should bring us closer to God, should increase our longing for Him. Um, that was David's experience. That should be that desire for fellowship. So as David is deprived of the necessities of this earthly life, he turns not in self-pity or, or anything like that, but he turns to the necessities of spiritual life and, and to those ultimate promises and fullness that he enjoys um, through his covenant relationship with God. Number two, understanding Psalm 63 also helps us understand that our true source of joy, and David mentions joy and rejoicing several times in this psalm, even during his wilderness exile. Our true source of joy is the coming King, Jesus Christ. So in other words... This psalm is not calling or is not trying to put on us some sort of legalistic burden. Make sure that you are suffering enough. Make sure that you are longing after God enough. Make sure that you are deprived and broken enough um, that you are longing after God like this. Well, rather, this psalm and its messianic hope is pointing us to the gospel hope that Jesus Christ has perfectly fulfilled this for us, that his victory is our victory, that ultimately he is our way out of the desert. <laughs>